Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Jan Simon. He's the managing partner of Vonzio Capital Partners. And he's the author of Search Funds and Entrepreneurial Acquisitions. Did I get that right? Is it Vonzio? You got it. Vonzio is right. Yep. Cool. And you wrote the book, right? You wrote the book on search funds and acquisition entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial acquisitions. So I'm excited to have you on here today. You're coming in today from Barcelona, Spain, which is really cool that we can spread. I'm sitting here in the Redwood Forest of Northern California. You're in Barcelona and we get to share your knowledge with the world. And I think that's, we live in a really cool time to be able to do that. Most definitely. It's a pleasure being here. So tell us a little bit of how you got started in this space, kind of your origin story or as you will, and how you got interested in helping people buy, sell and uh, do search funds and stuff? Sure. The short story, because we could talk an hour about anybody's life, and that's true also. But the short story is I worked for about 12, 13 years in investment banking, always on the investment side. So for Merrill Lynch, Selman Brothers, and Goldman Sachs. And back in 2003, I moved into academia. I was teaching around investing at a business school called IEC here in Barcelona. And there was a colleague of mine, which name is Rob Johnson. And so the two of us started to become great friends. And he kept on telling me, because we all often talked about investment opportunities. I had been on the investment side, so had he. So we talked about investing opportunities. And he told me, you should look at search funds. Have a look at search funds. Might be interested in search funds. But he never pressed on this. And until one day he said, Jan, I've seen you many times, that look at that. And so I started looking at that. And so I had done my PhD in two things. One thing is how hedge funds come to decision-making, and the other part had been around performance persistence in investing. And what you learn if you study performance persisting or what you could call skill, you see that in investing, you don't find a lot of that. At that time, you only find it within private equity and venture capital, only in the top quartile. Nowadays, it's only in venture capital in the top quartile. And here was an asset class that study after study after study had an incredibly high performance. When I say incredibly high performance was between 30 and 35%. And so here was an entire asset class, unlike venture capital private equity that looks in, depending a little bit on the vintage, that had an amazing home run time after time. And that's what got my attention, like, whoa, that's interesting. And so I started to read about it. So it really became an intellectual place. And then I started really enjoying the model, the whole idea that you would back a young entrepreneurial person, you know, try to find a company, then help this person to acquire a company and then help this person to grow a company. I think this is this was just great and it really connected with my background. So my background had been, well, actually three parts. I spent some years in the special forces, then had spent a big chunk 
and investing. And then by that time I had spent like four or five years teaching and helping the next generation. And that brought it all together because I think there's a kind of a special forces angle to it, but there's definitely an investment angle to it. And there's definitely an education angle to it. And so I got hooked. And so I started investing a little bit with my own money. And then I wanted to start a fund. So I reached out actually to this person of Johnson who, who had pushed me to it, but also to a person, another friend of mine, which is called Peter Kelly. And Peter was teaching the course both at IEC Business School as well as Stanford. And he had done that and had been very successful at it. And so I reached out to both of them saying, listen, why don't we start a fund investing in that? And they both had the same answer. They said, it's a great, it's a great idea, but I don't want to manage other people's money. But Peter said he was a senior advisor to what, is, what was the first fund that invested in this space. And it's still the largest by a stretch, which is called Pacific Lake which was founded by one of the first searches, if not the first searches, Jim uh, Sutton and uh, Corey Andrews. And they started investing internationally. And so we were introduced to each other and then we started to work for them, looking at the international side, helping with the international part. And then back in 2015, decided to start my own fund. And most American funds only invest in the United States. The ones that do outside typically limit between 25 and 30% outside United States. So I decided to get with what had been a close friend of me and a very successful entrepreneur in his own way, Christoph Pulings, to start a fund which actually did the opposite. About a third of our fund is in the United States and the rest is outside. And that's how we started back in 2017 with our first fund, 2020 our second fund. And at the end of this year, we should launch our third fund. I was looking into it. There's a website here that we're... I play, I hang out on occasion. Search funder is what it is. Searchfunder.com for people who want to raise search funds. What I've noticed, and I was just going to ask you, is this true across the border? Is just this misnomer I have though, is a lot of the search fund venture capital, or you call it funds, people who are willing to help fund searchers, they're school dependent, meaning they're like, if you go to Stanford, there's a group of people that will fund Stanford acquisition entrepreneurs. There's a fund for that. If you go to MIT, same thing. There's an MIT fund where they primarily, almost exclusively fund graduates from their alma mater, their school. Is that the case that you see too, or do you guys go across the board? I think it's definitely not what we do. But there's some people who will finance people from Stanford and or slash Harvard. Okay. They're very, very few. Okay. Most funds of funds, if not all, like us, we are funds that invest in those people, okay? We just want to invest in the best talent. Sometimes the best talent might come from Stanford. Sometimes the best talent might come from University of Louisiana. Sometimes the best talent might not even have an MBA, okay? If it would be so easy to say like, oh, you're from Stanford, you're going to make it. It is not the right approach. So this is really about entrepreneurship and you find entrepreneurship anywhere, but not at the same time. Not everybody that goes to Stanford, to Harvard, to any business school is an entrepreneur. And so I would not say it. What might be true is, and especially in the United States, since there's a lot of funds and a lot of funds of funds in it, that if you're an individual person and you have studied at MIT, that your access to MIT students is far much easier to get access to somebody who studied at UCLA. And therefore, a former graduate as an individual person, as an individual person, might indeed invest typically from the places they have they have graduated. I think it might be a little bit different for people who have done it successfully themselves. But if somebody has never raised a fund, never run a company, you know, has quite some money and wants to invest in the space, then I can see what you say might be true. 
So my understanding, like I said, I've only interviewed one other guy. I told you this before the show. I think I've only interviewed one other, maybe two guys on search funders. My knowledge in this space is very limited. I'm happy to say I'm fairly ignorant in this space of search funds. My question on that is, is the funds, as it sounds, it funds the search. Often you're funding the individual to for the year, two years. It takes them to find the business, to get it under LOI. And then the ones I've seen had some form of kind of first right of refusal to fund the acquisition itself. How is your structured or is that common across the industry? So the traditional format, and you're right to point out, since this is becoming more mature, you start to have different models like self-funded, accelerated, and what have you. But the traditional model is where one, what we call a searcher, which is an entrepreneur who wants to own and run a business that is his or her objective, comes to people like me and say, hey, are you willing to finance my search? Okay. And so when the person would do that in the traditional model and we would be interested, we would not be the only one. So typically a search has 12 to 16 investors, 12 or 16 people like me, which is important because as a searcher, you don't want to depend on one person. Okay. So let's say you want to do that. You have 15 people. Okay. You want to raise 450,000. Okay. And you have each one will be called a unit, okay? So everybody gives you 30,000 times, so about that, yeah, about 30,000, okay? Times 15, you get 450,000. And that gives you money for two years to try to find a company with certain characteristics. It's so difficult to find a company, but it's not easy to find a company which has the characteristics in the industries that we kind of like. That makes it so difficult. And I can, if you're interested, I can give you the numbers, okay? So let's say you say, you got your 15 investors together, they give you 30,000. Then indeed you have a year, sorry, two years time typically to look for a company. Within that budget falls your salary, your traveling cost, your due diligence, okay? When you find a company, it gives us the first right to invest. So let's say, and you, it will typically not be that big, let's say that it will not be pretty close, actually. Let's say that you need 15 million in equity. That means that each of us who has one unit, a 15th of your search, have the right to put into 1 million. You cannot say like, oh, yeah, I actually don't like you. No, you took my money at the beginning. I have the right, but not the obligation to put in all up to 1 million. I can also say like, oh, I like it, but I'm going to put in 300,000, 400,000, 800,000, all the way to a million, I have a right. If I do not follow, okay, I get the money back or I get it in equity. So I gave you 30,000, so I either get 45,000, so I get what is called a step up of 50% back, or you might give me 50% in equity. For the people that follow, they have the same deal, okay? On top of what they put in, let's say somebody follows 600,000, they will also get that 45,000 as a reward of the 30,000 that they gave you in the beginning, okay? That's how you do acquire the company, and then it's up to you to, to grow it. And you also get a part, that's very important for it, if you don't know about it, the reason why you do this, I think, is twofold. First of all, you are an entrepreneur, not the startup entrepreneur type of people, but the type of entrepreneurs that want to run medium-sized or smaller, medium-sized businesses. That's the kind of entrepreneur you are. So you would become the CEO. You would typically get, as a solo search, 8.3% at the start. So as a reward for finding the company, you will get 8.3% for running it for the first four years, assuming that you run it reasonably. You would get another 8.3%. And then assuming that you sell it high enough exits above 30% IRR, you would get another 8.3%. So well done. You would walk away with 25% of a company in which you have not put a penny. Awesome. So 
what makes an entrepreneur fundable? What traits and stuff are you looking for? I can see that there are traits that make somebody right for being a start, like going to VC and doing a startup. They're of the creative mindset. They want to create a business of their own. They want to disrupt something or whatever. I see those a lot, mainly because I came from that space, right? What's the difference between that type of entrepreneur and somebody that just wants to like, do what we're doing now, go find yeah. a, a successful business and run it, take it to the next level and potentially exit for a payday, right? How do yep. you guys determine the skill set that's required? What do you look for in that guy? There are some commonalities because they're both called entrepreneur, but there's a couple of different things. I think a startup entrepreneur is, I think, to a certain extent, more creative. As somebody who wants to create something out of nothing, okay? Because that's what the startup is. It starts with an idea, with passion, and then you create and you create that, okay? And typically, those people like to bring something from, you could say, zero to 100, Okay. And they have great ideas. Often those people, like you meet them a week later and have another idea. Their head spins throughout idea and idea generation. Okay, That's not our type of entrepreneur. Our entrepreneur is somebody who really loves the idea from think, taking something from 1,000 and bring it to 10,000. Okay, Something where the question is not, will this work? Yes, this works. This has been working for the last 30, 35 years. There's a structure in place. We don't talk about proof of concepts anymore. No, this is a company that's really doing and doing well. Now, the question is, can you grow it? The question is, can you inspire people? The question is, can you find out new products that you might also sell? The question is, can you redefine strategy? And so that's why not everybody, but a lot of people, about 80% have an MBA because those are the kind of discussions you have in an MBA, okay? Typically, entrepreneurship is a course in the MBA where you leak about creation. But the CEO has to know about strategy, has to know about operation, has to know about finance. All those other courses typically that you see in the MBA connects well with that. What we often see is we have people who went to the MBA because they wanted to be a startup entrepreneur. Because that's when most of the people think about an entrepreneur, they think about Elon Musk, they think about Steve Jobs, they think about those startup entrepreneurs. At business school, they learn that they're a different kind of entrepreneurs. And then they learn the model where actually... You don't have to have an ID, but you want to be CEO. That is a format that will give you that, okay? So that's a little bit different kind of entrepreneur. What they both have in common or should have in common is passion for what they do. What they both should have in common is coachability, okay? Because both have something in common is that they do not have any experience in managing and running companies. And that's a high-risk proposal. One of the reasons why our model works is because the unexperienced CEO is surrounded by amazing boards with people who have great experience. But if you don't have the capacity to listen, what point is in having a great board? There's also tenacity, okay? Being the first time CEO, things, wheels are going to come off. And we expect that as investors. And hence, you need the tenacity, which is true as a startup entrepreneur also, okay? But so you, just to make the point, there's some things in common, but there's really a difference in terms of what you want to do and the type of mess that you're willing to take on, okay? Startup, as you, you will have seen now, that's really, really messy, okay? Ours is already working. Typically, they make a little bit of a mess after that, but it's far much more controlled. What happens to these search funders if they don't acquire in the first two years? They have to raise more money, or what happens at the end if they don't, if they don't find a company? It's most of the time not that they don't find a company. It is that they find a company, but the investors don't think it's a good company. Okay, and so that happens about between 25 and 30 percent of the people who do not find a company. And when we discuss that part in the classes, that's what scares a lot of students. And I tell them that is not where the risk is. And it comes 
exactly to your question, like Pacific Lake, which I said is a big swell in this space, they actually looked what happened to those people we backed that did not find a company, okay? Close to 60%, two years after they failed and closed their search, close to 60% has on their business card CEO. So they come to that, okay? Just not through the traditional search model, okay? Not finding a business, it's hard to find those kind of businesses. And they didn't find it, but they did a great search. If you do a great search, one of the offspring of that is that you are CEO ready. That's one of, the, one of the things that people often don't see. They think like, oh, I have two years to find a company. You have two years to find a company and be ready to become CEO. Because on day one of your search, you're not ready to become CEO. What this process does, it helps you to become ready. So that's number one. And number two, and I think which is probably close to 25, 30%, typically works for a private equity firm, okay? Because you've done a lot of sourcing. You start to understand what is a good company, what is not a company. You typically have done a couple of negotiations. You definitely have LOIs. You definitely have due diligence. And so private equity likes to, to take on those people. That's just not where the risk is. The risk is buying a company and destroying value. That is where the risk is, okay? Because then, once this is all done, you like seven years eight years down the road and don't have anything to show for, okay? And so in that sense, you're aligned with your investors. Your investors don't want you to buy a bad company, nor do you, okay? So of course, if you don't find a company, you close off and it feels like failure, but people get over it and definitely then either become CEO or typically work for private equity. Now, does that pool of 10 or 15 investors become advisors also along the path? You're not going to throw your 50 or 30 or whatever thousand dollars into this search fund and then stand back and watch the guy fail, right? You're going to, I mean, there's advisement going on. There's like check-ins and check-ups and consulting type of making sure, that preparing him to be ready or her to be ready for to be a CEO, right? That is correct. But at the same time, it's very subtle, Okay. Because I could be breathing down your neck, say, how many calls have you made? Have you talked to this person? How about this? Look at this database. What that would do, it would increase the probability of you finding a company. But it would do two other things. It would make you less CEO ready, okay? Because you just have executed on me. And the second thing it would also do is you would find you're an employee of me. You don't want to be an employee. You're an entrepreneur who wants to become CEO, which is a very different thing. And so first, it's very subtle in the sense that we don't want to fall off the tracks and lose months looking into a business which was never in the cards to be acquired or shouldn't be acquired, you know? And so when we see that, we'll bring you back on the tracks, okay? But at the same time, we want to give you more space enough to grow in this unstructured environment to become a CEO, okay? If you would want to be an employee, you would have taken another path and so that you don't feel an employee of this. And I, th I think that's typically what you find with, the, with experienced investors. Sometimes we see new people coming in this space and very well meant. They really are on top of the CEO, CEO trying to help him or to her. And typically that at one stage, that's not helpful anymore for this person. Where has this space went, been and where do you think it's going? So in the last 10 years, maybe 15 years, you've been in it for at least that long. In the last 10 or 15 years, where has it come from to now? And then can you, I'm not asking you to tell the future, but can you kind of tell me where you're from your experience, where do you think it's going? Yeah. So there's two studies, there's two centers actually who studied it pretty intensively. One is at Stanford, looks at North America. And you can go to the webpage, which is the Center of Entrepreneurial Studies, they have great research on that, which is accessible. But they also do every two years, they do a study of the North American space, which they define as US and Canada. And so at the essay where I'm like, we look at the rest of the world. 
And so what you will see is like for the first, I would say probably 25 years, that really was under the radar screen. When I say under the radar screen, that means that a couple of people a year would do it. Okay, so a couple here, a couple there. And then you get a first kick around 2010. It really starts picking up a lot. And then you get it also in 2017. In North America, it, has, it seemed to have plateaued now. The last two years have kind of been the same. Internationally, it's still taking off. If you look at the numbers, they're pathetically small because like at the Stanford research, I think last year was 66 people who did it in North America. There's 100,000 companies that are for sale with that, with that kind of size, okay? So it's not that all of a sudden, oh, this is saturated. It is not. But I think there's a heel, there's an Achilles heel. There's a point which we have to be very careful of. This is really high performance. If you look at any environment of high performance, look at business, look at sports, you always get yourself the same combination. Old, experienced people and young, raw talent with a lot of passion and a lot of energy that come together. Okay, This is also the, one of the secret parts of our space. Now, as long as it was a couple of people a year, what happened is the previous generation of searchers who had been operators would help the new generation of search and operators. Okay, Ones that take off. You don't have that bandwidth in terms of board capacity which is an incredibly important part, okay? That's, is for me, the weakest. That's one of the two weak points, okay, at this stage, is that we grow too fast, we get weaker boards. Because one of the things that we find out, and there's actually a great fund, which is called TTCR, which also does a lot of research. And one of the research, by looking at the top 25, one of the things their research shows is that if you look at the top 25, 95% had the wheels coming off in the first three years. Really the wheels coming off. And so here you have a company which is really governing of the track. And what helps it back on track is that you have great searches with great characteristics as a character in terms of ethical people, also with a good head, but you have a great board. Okay. If they wouldn't have had those boards or that quality of searches, the story that you'd write about search would not be as great as it is now. And so if you want to keep on that going, we need to make sure that those boards are in place. But you also have to make sure that when you go to your 15 investors, you know, that you have six or seven investors in these there that do hard due diligence together with you. You'll do part of it, but it's the first time you typically do that. So you want to have a certain part of your investors also do hard due diligence. Since people see the performance, some money is coming in there, which kind of wants a free ride. You have your 12, 14 investors. Well, some of them will certainly do some due diligence with one thing, okay? And that we have to be careful of. That's why we see what we think are great searches. They really pick and choose who they want in the cap table because they know like once I want to look at the company, I want to have people who do due diligence. Once I acquire, I want to make sure that I can put a great board together, okay? And so I think the smart people are, or the people who have done their own due diligence before deciding to do that, before deciding on the cap table, I think look at those things. So can you walk us through the process, like step by step? This, if somebody wanted to do a search fund and reach out to you, they need to already have their private placement. In the United States, there's certain paperwork we do for raising money, right? Private placement memorandum and that type of stuff. Do they need to have that in place or are they just like they bring to you, fill out some type of, I don't know, some type of resume, some type of thing and say, hey, I'm interested in that. What is the process for somebody to get started in this space? The first thing that somebody should do, figure out, is this your path? And so do, and then the question is, do you really want to be CEO of a small and medium-sized company if that's what you really want, okay? That's the first question. And if the answer is yes, then the second question is how? Because as you alluded to, like, 
there are other formats. Some people finance the search themselves. Some people can even find finance acquisition themselves. Some people are going to work in an accelerator. Some people are going to be entrepreneur in residence. Some people are going to look for another model. So there's different models out there. There is not a perfect model, okay? You will ask somebody in the traditional search fund, they'll say this is the best thing. You will ask a self fund, they'll say the best thing. There is, however, a best format for you, okay? And so that's why you want to do the diligence on that. You decided I want to be a CEO. You figure out what is my format. If your format is indeed a traditional path, okay, then you reach out to people like us. Now, a lot of people reach out to know more, to have a coffee, to have a chat, and they have to do this about it, and that's fine. But when you say you're serious, that's when you send a PPM, okay? We see a lot of people who talk, and they're really convinced that they want to do that, and we never hear from them again, okay? One thing a PPM is a little bit of work, and that's kind of a barrier to entry. You're typically only going to do that once you figure out, yes, this is what I want to do. And so that's typically when they reconnect or they connect for the first time. They said, uh, search and search. I really want to do a search in the United States. Here's my PPM. Would love to have a meeting. And then typically you have a first meeting. Sometimes you have a second meeting to decide what if we from our side or other investors are going to invest. Now, what they typically will find is if you have 15 units, to put it like that, that placing the first two or three is hard, hard work because everybody wants to know who else is in there. Okay. You see, like, once you get some good names in there, or at least soft commitments for good, some good names, it picks up. And so then one of my advices to the people said, do not stop when you have a ratio of 15 units. Okay. And, you know, why is because you're not raising money. You're raising resources. Okay. And that's very, very different. If it would be just my money, once you have the money, that's it. No, 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 no. Okay. So since this is long-term advice, you want to make sure that you have the right people on your train. And hence, you might want to try to convince other people until you said, you know what, I have now 20, but with that, that 15, I can, that's really the team I want, okay? And then you phone to five saying, oh, really, I was oversubscribed, let's stay in touch, okay? But this is your journey, and hence, you want to make sure that is right. And from then on, you start looking. A lot of people take close to two years to look. So I'll give you the number, just that's from Ernst Young, Ernst Young showed that. So people reach out who do that. To buy one company, they reach out on average to 3,600 companies. Of those, they get answers of 256. Of those, only 125 are positive answers. Okay, the rest is like, you spam, leave me. I don't want to sell to private equity, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. Okay, we're not private equity, but some people think we are, might think we are. You have an ultimately conversations or meetings with 25, because of those 125, typically have asked for more information how that, which this might be too big, it might not, it might not be for sale ultimately, whatever, okay? You have price conversation with 16. And so one of the things we teach and one of the things we explain, okay, you do not have a lot of time. The seller has all the time, okay? And everybody wants to know, like, how much is my business worth, okay? That doesn't mean that they're ready to sell. So as soon as possible, you want to figure out two things. Is this a real seller? And are we in the same ballpark when it comes to money? Okay. Because if somebody says, yeah, well, my business is worth 10 times sales around. Okay. You say like, well, I'm not there. If you change or my investor change, now let's call, but let's move on. So that's why you see they have 16 price conversations. They have five LOIs. Okay. I always tell my students like an LOI is like getting engaged. Okay. Because there's a lot of work on that. We don't do that for fun kind of stuff. And your time is limited and your resources are limited. They're five LOIs to come to one, 
one, one, one, one, one, one, one marriage, no? And so this is a hard, this is really a hard process. And so that's why the tenacity comes in. Let's say you find a company, okay, we will help you in stretching the deal, LOI, okay, doing the due diligence. As you said, you had the military background, but in the military, you often say time spent on reconnaissance is seldom wasted. That is your due diligence, okay? And so that's where we play the money of our investors. It's on our due diligence. That's the most important thing for us. It's even more important for you because we invest in about 25 searches a year. You will do one acquisition and that's going to be it. And so for you, that's incredibly important. We'll help them. You do the process, you hopefully acquire the company, and then it will also help you know, what do you do in day one? How do you present yourself? What questions are you going to get asked? How do you answer to that, okay? And then little by little you do. Now, the, one of the tricks is to buy a good company in a great industry, okay? Because you want to buy, since you don't have any experience, you want to buy a company with, as a matter of speech, you don't have to do anything, where things are going well. And so you do that where your board also is learning. So the first year is really about you learning, it's about your board learning, okay? And then typically changes started to be implemented in the second year, 16, 18 months. That's actually when you start really changing the strategies, changing the business model, opening an extra sales point, whatever it might be, putting scalable structure in place, whatever it might be. And that's how typically the value is typically generated between year three and year six when you exit. You said when you exit on that, is that the game plan for most of these? There's a, a time span where you're going to help them buy it, grow it, and then sell it at some on some liquidation type of time frame? Not necessarily. So the exit for an investor is not necessarily the exit for a CEO. It's important to know because we often have CEOs that done four years well and they say, like, I want to sell. And when the board says, like, are you doing fine? Like, why don't you want to sell? They say, well, on paper, I actually have 25% because the business has been growing up at this valuation. But this, we bought this business with 10 million sales. I grew it to 35 million sales. Now, from doubling from here, that is not that easy. And so that's when a good board will sit down with you and say, listen, you've done a great job. We can invest your 25% today. We can actually venture 25% today, and we can actually give an extra 5% into the future if you hear certain milestones. Okay. But however, the investors will at one stage want to exit. Okay. Typically, they want to exit. And depending, you have people who want to happy to sit in there for 25 years, there's typically a natural progression for new investors. Okay. And that doesn't have to go together with the CEO, like Kevin Tawil, which has been the most successful CEO in this space. He was a CEO for 25 years. Now, the investors have changed. Well, venture capital came in and private equity came in. Okay, So that has changed over time, but that not that necessarily have to be. What is true, however, is if the CEO searcher wants to get off, we typically get off too. It's all either strategic, and they will have their own CEO, or to private equity, and they will bring their own CEO. They might ask for the leaving CEO to stay on for one or two years, but that typically is because this is such a personal relationship between the CEO and ourselves. Okay, then when, as a very famous investor, Beligan will say like, when a train driver gets off the train, I get off the train too. No. And so that typically goes together, but not the other way around necessarily. In your eyes, what separates a search funder, CEO, you guys fund that succeeds from one that fails? Like, what are the indicators that you've done this long enough? You've seen, I'm sure you've seen people fail too. What are the indicators you look for now that is an indication somebody might fail at this? It's a great question because it actually goes back to the two decisions that we make. You invest in the search and you invest in the acquisition. So we play the money in the acquisition. So typically a search is about 30,000, but the acquisition is about a million. And so you can see where we put the chips. Now, 
when you invest in the search, you know, we have some characteristic and we did, we discussed some on your show kind of stuff, but it is a very difficult exercise. And the main reason why it's a difficult exercise is because most of the learning, when the searcher come to us, most of the learning in their life has been structured learning. They went to school, they did exams, they graduated with good notes, then they went to work for a company where they had a boss who tell them what they were supposed to do. And when they did that well, they got a nice bonus. If it didn't do it well, they didn't get a bonus. And so then they go to business school. When again, it's structure learning, they have quizzes, they have exams. So, and all of a sudden, they start a search and there's nothing. I'm not saying, hey, I, there's nothing. So this is all in structure. Who they talk to, how they lead their process is totally up to them. And so what we'll sometimes see people will say like, oh, this, has, this person has a lot of potential. Two years later, when they acquired the company, they're still the same. They haven't moved on. And then sometimes you have people say, oh, I don't know. Two years later, they're really ready to become CEO because they have learned a lot in that unstructured business. And that's my connection with the special forces. That's what special forces do. You take somebody who's a civil, you go to a six-month training program, and they're ready for very unstructured operations kind of stuff. And this is, this is the same kind of idea here. Okay, so just to make the point that you cannot always, you typically cannot know how people are going to live in that unstructured environment because typically they have not done so. However, there are some characteristics of importance. You know, what are these? Okay, humbleness. Okay, people that are humble have the capacity to listen. They have the capacity to listen to investors. They have the capacity to listen to sellers. Okay, that's important since they're not a lot of experience. People that are hungry. Okay, because thirty-five percent returns. I take my head off for those entrepreneurs every single day. We have well-paid CEOs of big company with all means, and they're happy with 8%. Those guys, on average, take 35%. This is amazing, okay? Okay, so Peter Kelly at Stanford called that being ambitious, being humble, but also being ambitious, okay? The capacity to work hard, the capacity to take it on the chin, okay? Go home and get back the next day and get back up. So that capacity to actually bounce back very, very fast, okay? The capacity to be positive. If you're going to lead positive, typically people don't like to work for people who are half depressed all the time. People like to work for people who are optimists, creators, find solutions, okay? So I think those are some of the important characteristics. Some people have them in more doses than other people. What is the only characteristic that you cannot compromise is ethics, okay? You cannot invest and you should not invest in people who cut corners or people who think it's okay to cut corners, okay? That's never going to end well. And then that's something that I think this, this space has done very well and is very collaborative. Now, what makes this space very different is collaboration, okay? The investors will always help. CEOs will help searchers. Searchers will help actually people who think like, oh, I'm thinking about doing that. So the collaboration in this space is just really, really, really amazing. And that also is a question. Like, if we keep on growing so fast, does everybody who comes into this space understand that? That it's about giving forward. Like if somebody wants to invest in this space, I'll help this person. But this person takes on a little bit of handle. Like in four or five years, if somebody comes to you and wants to be an investor in the space, you should help her too. You should help him too. We need to be doing that. And if you grow fast, you've seen that enough. It's, it's a startup. You know, there's a great goal. Everything goes great. Then they have a great service. Then they have to attract a lot of people. And to keep the same kind of culture is not easy. And you have to make active efforts to be able to hold that.
So we talked about you guys selecting the entrepreneur, what the entrepreneurial criteria is. You get to work with them for a year or two, so you really get to know whether or not they got the merit or the stuff or the moxie or whatever you want to call it to make the acquisition before you cut that bigger check. And then like we already talked about there's a due diligence. You guys help with the due diligence. You want your board to jump in and do their due diligence. So there's multiple eyes looking at that. What would you say is the most difficult part of that? In my mind, it's might be like, now you got this new operator. He's in the seat running something he's never done before. Maybe this, he's straight out of college. This might be his first big company he's run. What's the most difficult part of this? to make sure that they succeed and you have a long-term goal as you as a venture capitalist or a, a guy who owns a venture fund funding these search funders is that the other people you and the other investors that work with you get an exit and you get more money to help more people right you get to do this again rinse and repeat so what's the most dangerous spot for you guys that you see so you're totally right but therefore the way to look at it from in this space is by looking at risk. That's one of the things that I learned at Goldman. Like first look at risk, see if you understand the risk, see if you see where the risks are, and then see what return you could get for it. You know, and if that justified. If you look at it from this point, you are spot on. There's an, an amazing amount of risk in taking somebody who's never run a company to run a company. Giving that is very, very risky proposition. You look at all the other characteristics, they should be low risk. So that's why the industry is important. We will often say we buy good companies in great industries. What does that mean? It means that the industries are not all lowly cyclical. It means that the industries are fragmented. It means that the government doesn't play a big role in those industries. Okay. It also means that those industries are not capex heavy. Okay. If you look at the company, it means that the company typically has a big, a big proportion of recurring, if not repeat, revenue. It means that this company is growing. It means that it has strong EBITDA margin. It means that the company is not complex, you know, and so forth and so forth. Okay, so that all those other pockets of risk are low, so that you can indeed put indeed this unexperienced operator and put in him or her. Okay, fast forward five six years, you still are in great industry with a, with now probably a great company, but now you have an experienced CEO. Okay, and that's what explains in a nutshell that's that those high returns. Now, coming to your back, your question, like, like, where does most of the risk like? It's indeed this young entrepreneur that either doesn't listen, okay, that is not transparent, you no, know, that let's say loses the biggest client. That's not typically one we don't like client concentration, but say like you have client concentrate, lose the biggest client, doesn't say anything to his or her board for a while, okay. Those are kind of the risk that goes with that in inexperience kind of stuff, okay. Also, sometimes A-type MBAs feel that they know the CEO, they have to do something. No, you have to learn. That's the only thing they have to do. Try not to screw up and learn, okay? And sometimes what we often see is like, like they want to do this, they have this idea, and if they run too fast without having that capacity to run or without having learned that indeed, maybe we should not sell that part of the company or downsize, we should actually do that size, okay? Which is the same thing, it's true for, it's not only the search, it's true for us investors. There have been several times that we think, because you always have a thesis in advance, okay, that after a year where you really know the company, you say, like, good thing that we didn't do that. So it goes with that inexperience, and that's typically where we see the things going wrong, okay? Or a company that you thought was not really sensitive to the recession. Well, COVID is another type of recession than the ones we've seen so far. So something like that happens, you will have to deal with it. You mentioned the fragmented industries as being one of the criteria. Do search funds actually help 
do the growth through acquisition where you help acquire the first one, they run it for a year or so, everything's solid, and you grow by acquiring other fragmented businesses in that space. Do you encourage that? And does how does that play out? Well, the way it actually works is it can never be the thesis or it should not be the thesis when you take over. So when you come to your investors and say, like, I really like this company, okay, they have to understand that this is a good company in the greater industry, okay? It shouldn't be a thesis of acquiring more acquisitions because doing acquisition, and especially doing acquisition is easy, but, well, relatively easy. It's the integration that is so difficult. So if you look at the statistics of the experienced professional, there's only about 25% that create shareholder value by doing M&A, okay? And it's the reason why they don't, it's three, it's strategy, it's finance, and it's PMI, it's integration. And the integration is the big one. And within the big one, it's typically culture. So can you imagine somebody who never run a company, that being the, in, the thesis from the start? So we kind of don't like that. If it's kind of next, and by the way, we could also do that's another story. Now, you're totally right. Fast forward three, four, five years. If this person is in, in the fragment industry and is now an experienced CEO, who really has a good control and runs the company well, that has often, well, that has in certain amount of cases been the situation where he or she kind of acquires and integrates, acquires and integrates. I was mentioning the name of Peter Kelly, which is an incredibly successful search. You know, typical situation of the beginning, really not good, learning the business, strong search, putting the business right. Ultimately, they did 25 acquisitions and integrations. But I would say it's only, it's typically only after year five to six. In a simplified model, what you could see three steps. Okay, the first three years are where you learn and you start doing some major decision-making, okay? And that runs until year five to six, where you see the fruits of that decision-making. And that's when most of them will actually move on or be sold, or when the investors kind of change. But the ones that stay in, typically year seven plus, what you typically see is they're the big financial decisions, a higher level of leverage. Or indeed, as you say, do M&A. But that's typically the third wave where, you know, and I don't have data on that, but out of the top of my head, I would say it's probably 15 to 25% who still does the last leg. And where the search and investors are still involved in. I think we missed this step inside of here and I want to cover it because I, the last time I interviewed somebody, people reached out to me and go, how do you do this? Where did the investors come from? Is that from, like, if I were to start a fund, do a private placement memorandum, send an invitation to you, take it a copy, am I reaching out to my network and looking for the rest of those investors? Or do you have certain people you would bring in because you want to work with them? You've worked with them in the past. How does that building that 15, 20, 25 people to select to be on your board and to be on your search funding investors, where does that come from? So typically, people who have interest in that would go to one of the search conferences. There's multiple, like Harvard has one, Kellogg Booth has one, Stanford has one. And there you would meet multiple investors. So typically, you could find that. You just Google it and you would probably find some investors. And you would reach out to them saying, oh, I'm going to be at the Kellogg Booth conference. I'm going to be there. Could I have a coffee with you? So that would be one way to do it. But another way is indeed reaching out to investors and saying, like, doing a meeting with them. And then also, like... What other investors should I talk to? And we will say like, well, for you, given that, you know, you're interested in this and that, why don't you talk to us? And we could easily either give you the emails or, you know, because that's what we do. It's not like, oh, you're giving somebody this email. Like if another investor thinks that you are great, you know, 
I would love them give my email because that's what I do as a job kind of stuff. And so you would very fast kind of knew the people who either, it doesn't have to be only funds or funders. There's really individual investors, which are great to, to have on your cap table, but do that as their job and they invest their own money, but they're very active and very involved and have great advice. So you'd find out very fast those people. The other thing, and that you should always do that, one of the few things you should definitely do is you should talk to other searchers saying, listen, how is that? How is it when a deal doesn't go through? What is the kind of stress? What would you wish that they would have told you? And then you also ask them, like, can you introduce you to some of your investors? Who should be the investor? Who kind of, which are kind of the investors that have been helpful to you? And you take note of that. What are the key legal considerations that come into play during this. I know there's going to be contracts and, and that type of stuff. When a CEO steps up and they acquire something, like if I go buy a company, like I bought a, a tiny, I bought a pest control company. It was way too small, but I bought it. I bought it, but it pretty much just bought the equipments and the customer list because I couldn't buy it. They had too many things they had done in the past that I wasn't willing to take the liability on for. And there was no way because it's an EPA regulated and state regulated thing. There's just no way I wanted to take on that liability. And there's no way to really clean it up. They had too many years of not keeping the records right. So where does that liability fall? Is it on the CEO because he's taking the ownership on it and everybody else has just kind of got this limited liability responsibility of I'm an investor in this, but I don't have, my concern is if you miss something in due diligence, I mean, JP Morgan just missed something in due diligence. If you've seen the news, right? Frank or whatever the name of the company spoofed their user count to the tune of millions of yeah. dollars. I'll be surprised if the lady has her name, Charlie or whatever her name was. I'll be surprised she don't go to jail. Um, yeah. Probably should. That said, yeah. things are missed occasionally. There's a liability beside that, yeah. and that was fraudulent. But there are just things that are missed. It could be a lawsuit that's pending, sexual harassment that doesn't show up for six or seven months. How does that liability play? I mean, you guys risk your money because you're invested in it, but the legal liability of the companies that fall on the CEO that's acquiring it, or how does that work? So we cannot do what you did, and I'll explain you in a sec why that is. There's three or four reasons why you do due diligence, okay? The first reason is to answer the question, should I buy this company? Yes or no. The second one is, should I pay the price that I put in my LOI? In my LOI, I put like 10 million or five times EBITDA, whatever it is. But now I find that million dollar liability. I can easily go back and say, listen, I said 10 million, but it's going to be 9 million because there's a liability, or at least we have to negotiate. And the third one, which is also important is, there's something in the purchase agreement which is called the reps and warranties. So if liabilities comes up or they're not clear, that's where they go. So you, the seller, you make a representation that there is no sexual harassment, there's no court case. That's in the reps. And if that's not the case, the warranty is like we have it because we think there is, for instance, there's going to be an escrow account in here, which we can hold that against or against the seller note or whatever it is. So that's how we typically solve it. And the reason why, and what you refer to is you bought the assets, you didn't buy the company. For us, that becomes far much more difficult because you bought a B2C company. We buy typically B2B companies. And if you do that in B2B companies, that means that all the contracts that the company has with the customers have to be redone. So that doesn't work with us because all of a sudden, the reason why you buy the company is they have those recurring contracts that last for like, and all those have to be kind of renegotiated. And that's why we kind of typically cannot do that. And so that's why our reps and warranties is going to be very, very important and has to be very well negotiated. Also, and the last remark is, and that's why, you know, it's so important that you have lawyers who do this, which is small and medium-sized acquisition 
for a job, not any lawyer, no, not the civil rights law, no, 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 not the constitutional people who do that. It's equally important that the seller has somebody who does that as a profession. And the earlier you can advise the seller to have lawyers who do that for a business on his or her side, the better. One of the biggest reasons that the acquisition doesn't happen is because the seller does not have people like that. Okay, Because what we actually do, this is a really trust relationship. This is typically the first person, first thing that the seller sells, and that's going to be the only one because he or she typically retires. And this is also life of the search. So this is very, very personal. And that's why the seller sells to you. If the seller all of a sudden sees those reps and warranties, that would break the deal. They would say like, I thought you trusted me. I thought you were going to buy the business for 10 million because the last time I sold something was my car. And I got a check and he or she got the car. And now there's all those conditions. If you have to explain at that moment that's normal, the deal is going to be go off. Now, if his or her lawyer said like, well, the next step is going to be reps and warranties and there's going to be that and that. And then sees your reps and warranties and he or she says like, yes, that's how it is. And you're not going to sell your company without that. That is very different. And so that's one of our many, many advices we would have to the searcher. Like this seems to be serious. Tell the seller that he or she needs people who do that. Not the uncle who's also a lawyer. No. I've seen more than one deal fall apart because the family lawyer, this guy has been my lawyer for 20 years. He set this yeah. business up. Like, yeah, but yeah. he's not an M&A attorney and this is going to do that. Now, do you guys require reps and warranties as insurance? There's insurance here, at least in the United States, that handles and covers the reps and warranties. That's fine, as long as the insurance company is a strong insurance company. One of the reasons that AIG had to be saved is if it, AIG would have fallen, a lot of banks would have fallen, not because right. of market risk, because of counterparty risk. And so if that job is, for instance, very active in that, but there's more insurance companies which are big, which are well-capitalized and well-regulated, who are involved in that, that's fine. That's fine with us, yeah. We keep alluding to it and talking about size of the company and search criteria and stuff and industries and recurring revenue. What is the size and industries you guys like? And to counterpart that, what are some things you just won't touch? In terms of size, we typically talk about companies between one and five million of EBITDA. A big chunk will probably lie under the three million. And so the sweet spot is like two and a half, three million is kind of the sweet spot for us. Under the million and even around the million, a lot of searchers think like, this is great. It's probably easier to grow something from 1 million to 5 million than from 5 to 25 million. It's actually not. So smaller company, if you look at, no, that's not right. If you look at success and failure, okay, there's far much more failure than smaller companies. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The first reason is small company gets it on the chin. It might even often be game over. Secondly, you buy a small company, you're the CEO of everything. Yes, you're CEO, but every single decision is going to come to you. Why? Because there's no structure to scale it. And the third one is a small company Try to attract an A player from another company. You'll see how much, how far that's going to go. And hence, if you buy a certain critical size, you know, all those three things are easy. So typically, as I said, one to five million, around two million is kind of the sweet spot. Growing industries is important. And so we like typically industries that grow either at, but hopefully about 50% stronger than the overall GDP growth. And then companies, of course, that have moat. Companies that you say like, okay, we understand why your customer come to you and it's defendable and we think that's sustainable. And what you want you to do now is grow that moat kind of stuff. So those are some of the important things in terms of size. Now, in terms of industries, what you will often hear from people like myself is we are agnostic to the industries. 
but we're not agnostic to the industry's characteristics. And that goes back to the low pocket of risk, some of the characteristics that, that we said. Now, as a consequence, there's some industries which are decreasing that would not be of interest of us, and there's indeed some big issues out there, like the aging population being one of them, the healthcare being also connected with them, but larger than that. Remedicated will become under increasing pressure. So there's some growing trends in their security, where you typically see that a lot of education. So you often see connected. So it's often healthcare, it's often education, what have you. One of the trends we've seen to one of your earlier questions and connected with that is that in the United States, mainly like the two biggest sectors in terms of search fund activity has been software, which in the original search fund, we didn't see that, SaaS-enabled businesses, technology-enabled businesses, have, as of late, last four to five years, have been of, uh, of interest. We actually only have invested quite a lot. We only have turned once an investment down for ethical reasons. So industry characteristics are of important, but there was one, a good company, and had great numbers, and the industry was also pretty good. And what this company did, it had a technology which allowed to develop energy in a very fast, very fast period of time. Typically, technology, for instance, that is used in airbags, that kind of technology. And so, always kind of good. It had a lot of customers, fragmented industry, a lot of smaller players, IP protection. But it, it, one of its customers was actually one of the, without saying the country, one of the bigger countries in terms of defense. And so, they actually provided technology to the submarines to unleash nuclear warheads. And so, we didn't want to, we, again, no judgment of other investors who follow that. But we invest money of our investors, and we also reached out to them and explained that a lot of them didn't want to be connected with technology can indiscriminately kill 10,000 of people to push off a button, no? And so we decided not to invest in that. But typically, it's more about the industry characteristics and the company characteristics. And also, if I might use this question of yours to put out two things. The two things that we typically see searchers under, underestimate is what is their own competitive advantage? when they look for a business. Not everybody is like you. And hence, what is your own competitive advantage? Because that often will connect very well to the seller. And the second one is, what is going to be the exit of this company? Because there's a lot of companies that are growing, that are fragmented industries, but not all is that clear that in four or five years, it's going to be an exit. And if your only idea is like, yeah, one day private equity is going to be interested in that, that's not strong enough. We often see them struggling with that in the beginning. You know, after a year of searching, they have, I think they've heard it enough that they understand that these kind of businesses are not the type of business that we might want to acquire. Awesome. Well, I've asked you a lot of questions. We're right at the hour mark. What should I have asked? What did we miss? What did you miss? You went to the entire, entire setup pretty well. I think maybe the only thing I might add, and then I can do that in two seconds, like a snapshot about the other models. So the self-funded is indeed where somebody does that themselves, either the search and or acquisition. Those people tend to buy other types of businesses. So they tend to buy smaller businesses, often more lifestyle businesses, but businesses that are rich in generating cash. Since those are mature businesses and that cash doesn't have to be needed to grow, they can leverage that more. And so that's what we often see self-funded searchers doing. The other format is an accelerator model, just like in the, in the startup world, where you know, you're not going to have 15, 16 investors, you're going to have one investor, which invests in five or 10 people like you every year. And so there's two types. There's a type where you're going to sit together and you're part of kind of a little class and you kind of can help each other a little bit. So that's another model. And so then the people who have more experience either do the self-funded because they can fund themselves and hence they can typically 
keep more of the equity on the back of that. Or what they sometimes do is they go to work for a private equity firm. They reach out to a private equity firm in the area where they have expertise. I'm making this stuff. I'm having expertise in biotech. So let me work for you as a private equity firm who work, who invest in that. You just pay me salary. You give me access to your due diligence. And when I find a company in this space, I'll run it. And hence, it gives you the advantage that when I find a company that you like, because you ultimately will take the final decision, you don't have to solve the CEO issue. So there's different models out there, which might also be worth looking at for the people who say, like, I want to acquire a company. I want to be a CEO. Now, what is the best part to rent to get there for me? Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for being here. I want to remind everybody that your book is available. I just seen it on Amazon, so I know it's available there. And it's called The Search Funds and Entrepreneurial Acquisitions. And it's authored by you, Jen Simon. I want to thank you for being here. Is there anything you want to say? Anything? If somebody wants to reach out and show you a PPM or reach out to you, how would they go about reaching out to you? What's the best way to, to introduce what they're doing to you? Yeah, the easiest way is just connect to me to LinkedIn, send me a message, and I'll, I'll take it from there. I'll make sure that's on the show notes to your LinkedIn link, so we'll put that there. Thank you for being on here and hanging out for just a second after it, and that's the show, guys. Great. Thanks a lot. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale, and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace we have partnered with has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now